everyone. Welcome to October and to the newest episode of the Research in Scottish History podcast. As always, my name is Carrie Schultz, and I'll be the host of the series. As a small disclaimer for today's episode, there are some descriptions of sexual violence and disease that sex workers in Edinburgh encountered from the 17th to the 19th centuries. These descriptions can be found between roughly 16 minutes and 24 minutes within the episode, should any listeners choose to skip over them. Otherwise, thanks again very much for tuning in today, and I really hope you're looking forward to learning more about this new and ongoing research. On today's episode, I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Kate Stevenson and Anna Brayton. Kate is a cultural historian with diverse research interests in the fields of dress and social history. She wrote her PhD on the history of school uniform and graduated from the University of York in 2016. Her book on the subject, entitled Gym Slips, Gender, and Gentry, will be published in 2021. Kate currently works for the National Trust for Scotland in Edinburgh and is a senior editor for The Art Story. Anna completed her MSc in Renaissance and Early Modern Studies at Edinburgh University and has also been working for the National Trust for Scotland since 2017. Thanks so much, Kate and Anna, for joining today. Thank you for having us on. It's really nice to be here. So it sounds like you have a bit of an interesting story for why you began researching sex work in Edinburgh in the 17th to 19th centuries. Could you start by explaining the story behind why you began this work? We both work at Gladstone's Land, which is a 17th century tenement in the centre of Edinburgh. And um, we have quite a lot of history about it from the early 17th century. Uh, And we know that one of the things that was definitely functioning there at that point was a tavern in the basement. Now, uh, a lot of taverns, and particularly lower class taverns at this period, did also double as brothels. Uh, so we we have uh, a huge huge number of volunteers that also help with the property, and one of them got really got her teeth into this idea, um, and uh, it's something that she would bring up at you know tea parties and gloriously inopportune <laughs> moments. And um, so we had quite a lot of that for a while, and then we had a visit from a psychic. Um, And this is something that happens fairly regularly at Gladstone's Land. Um, We have ghost hunters, psychics who want to come around simply just because it's uh, such an old building. And um, she visited the cellar with Anna. And I think I'll just pass over to Anna at this point. Um, Yeah, so she she basically came up with this idea that that there had been prostitution in, in the cellar. And so when we fed this back to to the volunteers, um, they they jumped on this with absolute glee. And um, we decided that we would have to we'd have to put the the rumour to rest one way or or another. Um, And um, then we kind of went down the rabbit hole a bit and um, and never really emerged. It's become a really fascinating subject. What we what we discovered was that while there is quite a lot of work done on this for, for places like London, um, there just really isn't that much around for, for Edinburgh or Scotland. Um, so it's given us a good opportunity to really get our teeth into it. Anna, you mentioned there that there hasn't been as much research done into sex work in Edinburgh or in Scotland in general as there is for places like London. So I'm wondering if you could explain the types of sources that you've used to begin this research. We've used we've a huge variety. So there's um, a publication... From, uh, from the 18th century called Ranger's, uh, Ranger's Guide. And it's a bit, 
it's an equivalent to Harris's list of Covent Garden ladies, and it basically lists um, a, the series of prostitutes that were available for for hire, um, <laughs> um, and um, and their their attributes, where they could be found. Um, it's slightly less detailed than Harris's list, um, but it's still it's still there. If you're not familiar with Harris's list, do do go and look it up. There are several copies still knocking around. Ranges is a bit more difficult to get hold of. Um, but that was really the starting point for I think both Kate and mm-hmm. I. Would you agree with that, Kate? Yeah, absolutely. So it dates from about 1775. So it's right in the middle of the period we've been looking at. And it, it is such a wonderful resource. Um, it's it's got these incredible descriptions and it also tells you, it, it's basically like an advertising manual. So it tells you where all of these brothels and these sex workers are located. Um, so it gave us a great jumping off point to, uh, to sort of get our teeth into the topic. Um, we did struggle for sources. Um, we did um, also find a couple of others that were very useful. Um, moving into the 19th century, uh, William Tate wrote a uh, quite an epic on the subject he was the first person that really researched sex work in edinburgh and he um he was involved in the magdalen asylums um and he sort of looked into it um, and looked into the consequences of prostitution um, but he was the first person really to estimate numbers uh, and to actually look at the mechanics of what was going on um, so that's also a great source for what we've been doing from those sources, have you been able to explore anything about the demographics of sex workers in Edinburgh, such as where they came from in Scotland, their ages, or their social class? Yes, we know some things. Uh, so Anna and I sort of divided the topic a bit, and I've been looking a lot more at the demographics, and she's been looking sort of a lot more at the consequences and the actual social history of, of those prostitutes. Um, so in terms of numbers, let's start there. Uh, it's really, really hard to know how many sex workers there were in Edinburgh over the period. We have quite what appears to be quite a solid estimate from William Tate from 1840. So he suggests at that point that there's about 200 brothels and about 800 sex workers. And of course, I should add that we're only talking about women at this point. Nobody is recording men who are working in the profession. And that's not to say they didn't exist. They they appear to have done, but we have absolutely no data on that whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a number of estimates from London throughout the 19th century as well. Uh, and if you look at those, it seems that about 0.4% of the population is engaged in sex work in some way. Um, so you can trace back roughly looking at the population of Edinburgh to get some very sort of very crude figures, but really until the 19th century, we have no specific um, numbers. Um, The other problem that's associated with that is it's really hard to identify prostitutes. So there's a number of accounts. It's absolutely brilliant. People go out and they say, oh, you know, I saw prostitutes everywhere. And and first off, they've gone to somewhere like Covent Garden in London, which is the epicentre of of where a lot of them are functioning out of. So, of course, they've encountered them. And second, they're assuming that women who behave in a certain manner are sex workers. Um, So one of the key ways of identifying a, a, a woman is... Uh, if she lifts her skirts to show her ankles, but also that's a behaviour that uh, a woman might partake in if she's avoiding a muddy puddle. So it, it's actually quite hard to tell who are sex workers and who aren't. Um, and so people are making assumptions based on on very arbitrary um, decisions. 
so there is a huge problem and we, we haven't really got to the bottom of it. Um, but we do have some yeah, very crude figures sort of based off the William Tate research. In terms of what we actually know about them, we do know a bit more. And things like rangers are brilliant resources when it comes to that. So we know a little bit about where some of the, the women are coming from. We know a lot are homegrown in Edinburgh. Um, and from Tate's research, we know that actually um, there's not so many women coming into Edinburgh except on special occasions. Um, but actually Edinburgh is supplying other cities in Scotland um, with sex workers. So they're heading out to Glasgow and places like that. Um, and Tate actually estimates for every uh, one that comes in, three sex workers go out to other cities. Um, we know roughly in terms of age, if you look at Harris's and Rangers, you get a good idea of, of the sort of ages because the ages are always given through them. So certainly throughout the 18th century, the average age of sex workers is in their early 20s. Um, and certainly if you look across Rangers, um, there are, the average age is about 23. Um, that doesn't mean that there isn't, there aren't younger girls out there, but by this point it's frowned upon. Um, but we do know even in 1835 that 4% of admissions to lock hospitals, so um, hospitals that dealt with venereal disease, were under 15. So there's definitely something going on. Um, in terms of origins um, beyond Edinburgh, um, we're certainly, we've got references in ranges to women coming from Ireland, coming from England, um, and of course, Edinburgh's a port city. So women are coming in, um, uh, and certainly Miss Galloway, who's mentioned as the, the Irish lady in ranges, um, she, uh, according to ranges, served her apprenticeship aboard a man of war. And so she's clearly come in on a boat. Uh, and we do really interestingly also have two um, women of colour named in Rangers, um, which again, I think probably ties into it being a port city. Um, and there are actually a number of high profile black sex workers in London at this period. So it's not completely unheard of. Um, and in terms of sort of percentages of the sex workers overall, it seems to be a higher percentage of women of colour um, in the sex work trade. And that is could be for all sorts of reasons. Um, poverty um, being one, um, that actually there is this fashion for women of colour in London as prostitutes um, and uh, a real sort of growing fashion throughout the 18th century for exoticism as well. Uh, so it's a very mixed picture. And obviously I should say in terms of class, almost all of these women are coming from the lower echelons of society. Occasionally you will get a middle-class woman that, that sort of shows up um, but that's usually because she has um, had sex outside marriage. And I think Anna will talk a little bit more about some of the instances that that might have occurred in earlier um, and sort of basically been ruined and rejected by her family and then then turned into um, turned to sex work as a solution. One of the really interesting things that you mentioned here, Kate, was this mobility of women between Scotland, Ireland and England or even within Scotland itself as they engaged in sex work. And I'm wondering if you could put Edinburgh in a bit of a broader context. So how does the prevalence of sex work in Edinburgh compare to other cities of the time? It's really hard to tell. Certainly in the 19th century, it seems to be very comparable between London and Edinburgh. But prior to that, in terms of the reliability of the statistics, they're just so unreliable that it's really hard to be sure. 
So I just want to return specifically to Edinburgh then, and part of your work focuses on this change over time from the 17th to the 19th century. Did you notice any difference in the prevalence or the demographics or the number of women who were involved in sex work throughout these three centuries? To be honest, it doesn't seem to change a lot, (laughs) Um, but it seems to sort of keep pace with the population. Although, of course, as at any time, uh, you get people looking back and um, there's a gentleman called William Creech who, who writes a series of comparisons between Edinburgh in 1763 and Edinburgh in 1783. So over that 20 year period. And he looks back and he says, oh, there was no prostitution in 1763. It was very rare. <laughs> and oh, look at it today. Uh, so... I I think there's a bit of exactly the way people do now. They look backwards and say, oh, it wasn't like this when I was younger. I I think really that that's hyperbole on his part. I don't think it's actually true. You've touched a little bit upon brothels. And I'm wondering if you could explain a bit more about where these were located in Edinburgh and if this location changed from the 17th to the 19th century. Yeah, absolutely. I've actually made a Google map. If I can give you the link later, if uh, if you want to make it in the podcast, it's it's absolutely and everything. Um, so taking the lists that we have in ranges and also um, a number of newspaper articles, broadsheets, things that Anna found, I've managed to plot locations. Uh, and certainly by the 18th century and, and, and prior to that, based on what little, and actually I think this ties into your last recording is some of the Kirk sessions is really where this research is going to have to go next. Um, but it's it's all gathered around the high street and the Cannon Gate um, throughout the, the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, so that does tie in nicely with it happening in our tavern, although, you know, we haven't been able to pro- prove that conclusively. Uh, but it does change come the 19th century. So towards the end of the 18th century, the new town of Edinburgh is built uh, and gradually sort of everybody with wealth moves over there. So the higher class sex workers also move over there. So by the the sort of the early 19th century, there is a split. You've got the lower class sex workers still uh, gathered around the high street and the Canning Gate. uh, And you've got the higher class ones all operating out of the new town and being gathered around Princess Street. Uh, And then actually, really interestingly, just to take it into the 20th century, um, come about 1930, and this is based on some research that someone's done uh, on um, fines and um, writing ups for soliciting throughout the 20th century. Um, It's they're all in the new town. There's uh, there's basically (laughs) none in, in the old town. So sort of come the 20th century, there has been a wholesale move over to the new town. Um, so, yeah, it does move around as the wealth moves. Thanks so much, Kate, for those insights into the demographics of sex workers in Edinburgh. So turning over to Anna now, um, could you talk about some of your research into the issues that Edinburgh sex workers faced, such as violence or disease? Yeah, sure. Um, So, I mean, poverty, violence, disease, they were all really big problems for um, for Edinburgh prostitutes, for prostitutes all um, all over the world. Um, Kate mentioned earlier that poverty was one of the main reasons for sort of drifting into prostitution. And um, a lot of women would sort of do casual sex work on the side um, to supplement their income. Um, so you get it in all in all sort of walks of life there. Um, I suppose the violence, there was no real way of protecting um, the women against violence and disease. Um, 
and, and it was prevalent. You have a, a really interesting case in uh, 1823 about a lady called Mary McKinnon, who um, there are loads and loads of newspaper articles about her. There's broadsides, which are a kind of sensationalist um, sort of tabloid kind of um, kind of newspaper. And um, she's she she becomes quite a figure of pity, and she she eventually um, there's a huge um, uproar on her behalf. I'll sort of go into to um, to her story a little bit. So she is originally from the Highlands of Scotland, and she's um, according to various reports seduced by a soldier and cast aside, and she ends up having a baby, um, and her parents cast her out because of this. Uh, she's an unmarried woman with an illegitimate child on her hands and she makes her way down to Edinburgh where she becomes a prostitute. And in a sense, she's quite a, a sort of a success story because she goes from being a, um, a sort of down on her luck prostitute to actually owning her own brothel on Southbridge. And um, she's looked upon quite well by her local community. She does... Um, she does things like charity work. She goes and, and, you know, is well thought of by her neighbours and things. It's not, um, it's not a badly thought of brothel by any means. And she was known to look after the girls under her charge as well. Um, but one particular incident in 1823 occurs where several men uh, storm the brothel, um, sexually assault the girls and then um, do not pay for their services and then they start to destroy the furniture in the brothel as well and um, Mary arrives home at some point during this fray and one of the men ends up stabbed and he dies some days later and she is indicted for his murder and um, sentenced to death eventually but the people of Edinburgh sort of react in a really strange way to it. And you see this even within the same newspapers as well, that you get completely different, uh, differing opinions. So you have um, part of society which starts to raise awareness for her plight and wants her excused from the death penalty and wants her to be let out um, because they feel really sorry for her and they make um, a huge amount of um, noise over her over her plight as a fallen woman, which is a really kind of popular trope uh, all the way through uh, the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, I suppose it's even even uh, to a certain extent nowadays. Um, and then you have the other half of society who really condemn her actions and just want to see her punished for it. Uh, and unfortunately, she does she does end up being executed. Um, but I think it's a really interesting um, example of prostitutes facing violence, being unable to defend themselves, um, but then also the public reaction to, to the case as well. Um, but there is a huge preoccupation with, with, um, with, with Mary as a, a sort of figurehead, um, and they go into great detail about what she's wearing and about her face and about how, um, how genteel she looks. Um, it's just a really interesting, um, a really interesting case. Um, 
disease-wise, um, I mean, disease was rife. Um, it was actually interestingly known as uh, having syphilis was known as wearing a pair of Canongate breeches um, in Edinburgh, uh, which shows the prevalence of, of prostitution in, in Canongate, particularly. Um, and um, there was no real differentiation between the different sexually transmitted diseases. It was, it was known and it was feared. Um, they knew that once you had it, it would quite often re-emerge. Um, but there was lots of different thoughts about how to get rid of it. Um, and one of those, which um, is, I mean, all of them really were highly, dis uh, highly distasteful looking back on it. Um, but what, I mean, I'm just really glad you don't have the picture to associate um, with right now. <laughs> I mean, bathing your, your syphilitic sores in, in fresh urine um, and um, sort of massaging mercury into them and all sorts. Um, but one of them, because of a widespread belief that only women could pass on syphilis and sexually transmitted diseases. Um, it was also believed that um, they could equally take it away, um, but it had to be a sort of pure, virginal, young woman. Um, and so this is where you start to get very young um, girls being inducted into prostitution um, as a means of taking away an older man's syphilis. Um, and Kay mentioned lock hospitals before, and uh, you have a really horrible statistic of, of a nine-year-old being um, being admitted into the into the lock hospital for having a sexually transmitted disease um, in in the, in the mid nineteenth century. So you can see it's a really difficult um, a difficult situation for them. There's not much they can do about about any of these things. There are means of recourse for treatment afterwards um, but there's very little preventative measures there was very very little you could um you could do and i think they were aware of, of their vulnerability um but as i say when you're driven to it through poverty there was very little means of getting out of it um and the success stories of of your mary mckinnon's sort of reaching the heady heights of only their own bottles were were fairly few and far between so I'm really interested in that story that you mentioned about Mary and how she did end up getting public support for her cause, even though she was sadly eventually executed. And so I'm wondering about the brothels themselves and whether communities of sex workers within the brothels had a way to protect themselves from violence or disease. Or was this something that they often had to go to outside community and to the public to sort of defend their cause? Um, not that I've not found anything um, in Edinburgh particularly um i think it was mainly public reactions to things that helped them so kate mentioned that sort of uh, pedophilia and, and and younger women was heavily frowned upon um and there are incidences in newspapers of um of of men who frequent younger women being referred to as beasts and and, and things and I think it's that kind of thing that helps the women the most um, because you have a society where where people are very careful about what their neighbors think of them um, I mean as I say as it's not much has changed and people are very aware of what people think of them and and this does tend to drive 
um, and drive a certain amount of morality um, around around the brothels. Just to bring this really interesting discussion to a close, I have two final questions for you both. First, is there a demonstrable difference in how women sex workers and then the men who visit the brothels are perceived in public opinion? So I'm wondering if gender plays any role in how the wider community views sex work in Edinburgh at this time. And then second, I'm also wondering if there's any change in how sex work is perceived amongst the wider Scottish community, particularly from the 17th to the 19th century. That is a very interesting question um, and very difficult to answer, I'd say. Um, <laughs> um, there is a, a general trend towards um, sort of reformation societies and societies of morals, um, and they are present throughout um, from the 17th century straight straight through to, to the present day. Um, and they kind of pop up alongside um, Magdalene Asylums and uh, a lot hospitals as well as so places for, for these women um, with, with sexually transmitted diseases or, or, um, or without to, to go and stay and reform their ways of life. Um, but you have um, these organizations endorsed by people like King George III, William Wilberforce, uh, Daniel Defoe. Um, so, and they're there to, to sort of reform, I suppose, get rid of prostitution altogether. Um, but they look down upon the men who use the brothels as well as upon the women um, who are in those situations. Um, but that's only one side of the story because on the other side, you have um, a sort of a general condemnation for the women in the brothels and for the prostitutes and people look down upon them. Um, but at the same time, you have a general acceptance uh, that, that men will, will still use them. Um, so you've got two sides of the same coin and it's, it doesn't really change that much. And um, I wouldn't say, what do you, how do you see it, Kate? God, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's a really complex issue. Um, and you do get certain, like, more uh, localised influences coming in and, you know, slight changes in the way morality moves from the church to um, sort of legal um, recourse um, and sort of changing um between the the 18th and the 19th century, the way morality is viewed does alter. There is a subtle shift within society. So there are sort of small scale changes, but I think the broad picture doesn't change hugely. Um, I suppose the other thing to throw into that mix is is also um, the use of um, images of sex workers and things like pornography, which was very widely read, particularly throughout the 18th century. Mm. Um, And again, they're often particularly in those contexts, they're often quite sympathetically portrayed. Um, so it, it is it's an incredibly complex issue. I'm sorry, I don't think either of us have given you a very satisfactory <laughs> sorry answer. Sorry for not that. answering your question. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for all of that. I found it a really interesting discussion, and I hope that your future research on this goes well. I also hope that one day you can prove whether or not this actually occurred in the tavern that you work in. Um, But thank you again for joining today and for sharing all of your research. I really appreciated it. And I'm sure the listeners will as well. Well, thank Thank you so much for having us. So that brings us to the end of October's episode. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope that you enjoyed hearing more about this new and ongoing research. 
Kate mentioned within the episode that she's been building a map to chart where brothels were located in Edinburgh from the 17th until the 19th centuries. I've included a link to this map, both within the episode description as well as on the Twitter page for the podcast. Do be sure to check that map out if you're interested in this subject further. Thanks again for listening, and I'm looking forward to speaking to you again next month. Thank you.